Good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage is going to be in Philippians 4. If you'd like to follow along with the Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. And you can find this passage on page 1787. Philippians chapter 4, and we will go from verse 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Uh, just really briefly, so Adam Darbone is going to be candidating this next week. The town hall is going to be on Thursday at 7 o'clock. That's ask him any question. There'll be a few questions about like church leadership that he'll answer that'll be like boilerplate, and then there'll be a chance for you to interact with him personally, and then he'll preach on Sunday morning next Sunday. And then there'll be a meet and greet after the service to talk or ask questions or whatever with him and his family and with Michelle, his wife. And then later will be that meeting the next week. Okay, so, um, so next week will be like a candidating weekend for this possible uh, new associate pastor on our team, Matt, Adam Darbone, who was here like a few months ago preaching. So you can go back and look in that sermon too if you want to as well. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to preach this morning in a way I don't like to. It's going to be really shallow in my book um, because I'm going to try to like cover a kind of a broad thing and give a framework for it. Does that make sense? We're doing a series right now through Philippians 4, which is the last chapter in the book. And it's where the Apostle Paul is like applying all this theology from the first three chapters to the life of the church. So we're kind of double tasking with talking about the life of High Point Church. What are we trying to be as a church with the apostle teaching us what the local church is supposed to be like, because turns out we're supposed to be, High Point Church is supposed to be a faithful local church, right? With some idiosyncrasies relative to our time and place and who we have and stuff like that, right? I want to start, though, with um, a spiritual inventory. So if you have something to write on, that's great. Write on it. If you don't, take the thing out of the pew rack in front of you, or like if you just have a photographic memory, you can do this in your mind. I want to, I'm going to give you a five-question, like, spiritual, psychological inventory for where you're at. And you can use this relative to like kind of what your spiritual psychology is at the moment and also the trajectory of your spiritual character, okay? And so I'm just going to ask you five questions. I want you to answer the first thing that comes into your mind that you think is true, okay? Don't overanalyze it because you'll overanalyze it in a way to protect your emotions. So just like what you know is the first two answers that comes into your mind, that's the answer, okay? All right. And don't pretend like you're supposed to come up with the Christian answer. We're talking about the truth about what's going on inside of you, okay? Then we can move towards what Jesus wants, okay? But let's just be honest first. Okay, the first question is, what is your sustaining affection? Okay, what do you praise to others 
and emotionally feed on in your mind and heart. Like all of us, like human beings are meaning of ours. Okay, we eat food to keep our bodies going, but we feed on meaning in our lives. What is the thing that means something to you that you are emotionally feeding on and you find yourself praising or talking about with others, even sometimes when they don't want to hear about it? What, what's, what's the guiding, sustaining affection actually operatively in your emotional life, in your thinking, in your feeling, okay? Ready for the second one? The second one is, what's your extroverted attitude? What's your default attitude facing out towards others as you live your life? What would other people say it is? That might be a, a better way to get at it, especially if you're a teenager. Um, just kidding. Sorry. It's true for everybody and you, okay? Right, so like, what is, what's your baseline attitude or demeanor towards other people? Would other people bump into you especially unexpectedly. You're not emotionally preparing yourself to deal with them. You just are bumping into other people as you move through life. What is like sort of the default feeling of attitude they're getting from you? What's your extroverted attitude? Okay. The third is, what is your response to negative emotions? Right? Human beings are fragile. We're often terrified. The Bible talks about fear everywhere because our lives tend to be full of it unless we overcome it. And so like, there's a lot of negative emotions that come in, things we don't like, things we're afraid of, right? Constantly whirling around in our mind and hearts. What do you do with that? What happens when you have negative emotions that get your attention? Right? How do you mentally respond to negative emotion, fear, and anxiety? Okay. Fourth, what is your mental occupation? What does your free mind go to? What do you think about when you don't have to think about something else? Right? Do you know that about yourself? You get in the car after work, you're gonna drive home, where's your mind go? You're just in the grocery store line. You're just, you have to, you're gonna wait there four minutes. What happens in your mind during those four minutes? What is your mental occupation? Right? And then lastly, is personal emulation. Who's your influencer? Who do you really want to be like? Human beings are, we learn by imitation because the world is so complicated, understanding everything like analytically and then like modeling it all, that's not really how we actually operate. For most of the things in our life, we look at something else, we know that we approve of it, and then we emulate it. We try to be as good or better than it. So who, who is that for you? Or what is that for you? What are you trying to emulate? Now, you might be thinking, some of you are thinking, and I would say this is a generally good Spiritual attitude. Nick, why are we talking about this at church? Is this going to be a psychology talk, right? Why are we talking about our sustaining affection, our extroverted attitude, our response to negative emotion, our mental occupation, our person? Why don't you talk about Jesus? I actually came here to hear about Jesus, right? And here's the answer. Because all I've just done is semi-psychologize the verses you just heard. I just put them in kind of non-spiritual language. And what this passage teaches about that, which we're going to get to in just a second, is that you actually have like a lot of decisive influence over these things. And these things are not just your, your baseline state of your, like your mental attitudes. They are also the trajectory of your spiritual character. What is going on in these five things decides who you are going to be in the future, both temporally and everlastingly, right? They're not under your immediate control. It's not like you can just like change them just like this. But over time, your body and your mind and your soul habituates to whatever it is you're doing in these five areas. That's why the Apostle Paul comes at the end of this epistle. He cares about the spiritual theology and the discipleship of the people of the church of Philippi, and he hits these five things very briefly. 
but these five things. And listen, the reason I'm telling you this is, like, write these five things down. You can use these in your mentoring relationships. You can use these in your parenting. You can use these in your personal devotions and your personal discipleships. You want to take an inventory of your Christian spirituality? This is a great place to start because it's given to us by the apostle right here. You're like, I don't know about this, Nick. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, listen. What is supposed to be your sustaining affection? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. He's saying that like, and all through this book, it's rejoice, 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 all the way through it, right? And he's saying that like Christ, particularly if you read chapter three carefully, your union with Christ, and I'll get to that in a minute, is supposed to be your sustaining affection, right? And then let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, right? If you're in the right place emotionally with God, if you're growing in real Christian discipleship, your natural extroverted emotion towards other people as you're bumping into them is gentleness. It's mercy, right? And then, what's your response to negative emotion? The answer is, well, prayer. But not just like regurgitative, like, like well, I'll just like pray for it to go away. No, it's, de- it's deeper and more operative than that. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. So a very specific mentality and practice. Present your request to God, because he's the only one who can do anything about the stuff you can't control, which is what you're anxious and fearful about, right? And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind, right? So it's not just prayer. He's He's telling you that this spiritual practice has a specific psychological spiritual outcome. The point is not just to ask God for stuff. He's saying the point here is to deal with anxieties and fears in your life so that your mind can come under the peace of God, which helps control and protect your heart and your mind. Like, I'm not psychologizing it. That's literally what the text says. To not psychologize it would be unbiblical, right? And then lastly, and then what's your mental occupation? What, what does your mind go to when you're just thinking about stuff? You'd be like, well, the answer is going to be Jesus again. Well, the answer actually isn't Jesus because that would be too narrow. We wouldn't be expansive enough people. We wouldn't be growing enough if we were just only thinking about trying to picture Jesus and just thinking about Jesus. No, no, we're taking our joy from our union with Christ and the truth of the gospel. But then as we think in our lives, we let our minds be occupied with things. It goes to everything in creation, but in a particular kind of way. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about such things. Right? We can think about—literally, it says everything five times. He could have just listed those positive words, but he repeats the word whatever five times. See, look, you, a Christian can grow in their spiritual psychology, in their inner life, thinking about anything and everything, but in a certain kind of way. Right? It's nobility. It's purity. What's true about it? What is excellent or praiseworthy in its practice? That's what we dwell on. Otherwise, we'll dwell on negativity and fill our minds with anxiety and be going back to prayer every minute. And then lastly, personal emulation, right? He says, finally, brothers, whatever—oh, sorry. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you, you need to look to someone. Imitation is actually a good thing. It's not inauthentic. Because you are personally involved in the choice of what to emulate. There's millions of people to emulate. You're going to choose who and what in them to emulate. It is profoundly authentic and personal, 
but it is also imitative because we have a shared life together and we're shaped based on how we interact with each other. And the worst thing you can do is think that's not true because then you will emulate people without thinking about it. You'll emulate people, it'll just be unconscious, which is not good. The context of these five things working out is the local church. He's speaking to the body of Philippian believers in their lives with each other, how they do these things primarily together. The church, God reforms our spiritual character through and in his church. All these things can be pursued individually and personally. But when we come together, what are we doing? What are we doing? And the answer is, we're seeking to grow in Christ. Well, how does one grow in Christ? Well, aiming our spiritual character at Jesus, and particularly these five areas the apostle is giving us to focus on together, to agree on and focus on. So the faithful local church is a community that's passionate about spiritual growth, particularly in these ways. Okay, let's, let's pop through these quickly, right? The first thing is, is that our, our sustaining emotion, like what we feed on in our hearts, is supposed to be Christ. But that can be, that, that can be too Sunday school in its answer. It's like, oh, you just, what do you, you just picture Jesus? Like doing carpentry or like carrying children or like am I supposed to literally picture him bleeding on the cross or coming out of the tomb? Like how am I supposed to like feed on Christ? And, and the answer is, well, partly in the content of the gospel, as you read through Philippians 1 through 3, for example, all the different truths and how they all interact with each other and how those personally relate to you. Like, for example, in the hymnody we sang earlier, right? But also, like, chapter 3 is the most specific statement about this. Now, I preached on chapter 3 in two sermons, so you can go back and listen to those if you want. Um, but generally, the, you, you can see the verse verses, finally, brothers, this is chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord, and then he goes on for 10 verses and mainly talks about our spiritual union with Christ. Us receiving a righteousness that's not our own because of our union with him. Us dying with him in his sufferings and being raised from the dead and looking forward to our resurrection. And that in that mentality of that union with Christ that we feed on day in and day out, we move towards maturity. He said that is the mature attitude of a Christian, right? So this morning I just want to say two things quickly about worship. Right? Devin talked last week a good bit about um, direct attention on God, which is something we see on our staff team a good bit. How do we increase our direct attention on God? Because most, a lot of people in this church are like analytical people with good educations, and you like to, we like to figure out how things work. And when we do that, we get into the details and often the minutia, and we actually direct our attention to all the stuff we're doing and not to God himself. And that is not what, how Christian faith is supposed to operate or change us. So the first thing I want to say, especially if you're like— uh, there's lots of reasons this is the case, but we need to understand inhibition in spiritual expression is not a virtue. The ability to stand and only barely mouth the words to a song, the ability to not, like, rejoice, the ability to be, like, very reserved and not express yourself actually isn't a virtue. The, the, the word that Paul uses over and over again in the book of Philippians in just, like, four pages is he doesn't just say, try to have some joy deep, 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 deep down inside of you right? No, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Express it, right? And it's important for two reasons. The first is, is that we, as human creatures, are very inhibited. Some of the most important things we need to do and express, we have a really hard time doing it. Saying to your kid, I'm proud of you, when you know there's lots of stuff still about them not to be proud of, 
You're like, well, I'm not sure that I'm proud of you is a perfectly correct and accurate statement, right? But like, they got to hear you say, I'm proud of you. And it's kind of hard to say sometimes, especially for dads, or I love you, or I'm sorry, or really deep things, or I don't want to live this way anymore, or we're moving to another city, or like, there are things that like people just hold inside in ways they should not. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, you should just vomit everything that comes into your intuitional mind on everybody around you who claims to love you. Right? One of the reasons why we often sing hymns at our church, as well as contemporary songs that are more expressive and less ordered, is because it, it, when you express things that are really deep, oftentimes you shouldn't just like spew it out, but you should move it out in expression whilst choosing your expression carefully. I've had a a few difficult conversations with people I care about that I really needed to express things with and they really needed to express them with me over the last few months. And I recognized I had to say the thing, but not the first words that came to my mind. Right? It's not authentic to just at people. It's authentic to say the truth in what? Gentleness. Right? And so, certain groups of people need to hear more than other groups of people. Inhibition is not a virtue. And this also means, it also, one of the things, your inhibition in worship is also holding back your capacity for happiness. It's holding back your capacity to have incredibly important conversations with people that you have issues with. It's holding back your capacity to freely give praise to other people so as to have a ministry and lifestyle of encouragement. It's holding back a lot of really, really deep and important things. And sometimes to start with praising the one who really deserves your, like, unmitigated praise. Like, you don't have to be careful. Say, I mean, whatever you say good is going to be kind of true. Except for, like, I love your sushi, but, like, I mean, he made the fish. So, like, almost everything applies. Right? Just, like, just, just give it. Just sing it. Just, like, and, like, if you feel kind of dumb, that's actually, like, kind of a good sign. You should feel a little embarrassed. And when you feel that inhibition, you're like, well, I don't want to do this. Well, I don't really like this. Well, I don't like— And oftentimes your mind is coming up with, like, reasons why you're right. Well, this song and the lyrics aren't good enough or something. You know what I mean? Like, or this is stupid music. And why can't we— Or I don't like this prayer. What do— Okay. Sometimes that's right. A lot of times it's your inhibition talking. And you need to push through and express praise to God. Look, if you don't like the words of the song, just sing different words that praise God while we're singing the song. If you think it's heresy, fine. Don't sing that line. Sing something else that's better. But sing something and sing it heartily and offer it to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And push through your inhibitions and it will do beautiful things in your life. Remember, obey God and he will create many beautiful unintended consequences. Disobey God and you go against the nature of the universe and there are always many unintended bad consequences. You can't plan those All you can do is choose whether or not you're going to believe him. And so, therefore, expression with discipline, right, and environment. One of the reasons to be expressive, especially at church, not falsely, but truly, is because we actually feed off of each other emotionally when we express ourselves in the Lord. Like, I know people who are just like, they were so, they want to come back to church so much during COVID because they knew how emotionally dependent they were in their praise of God on everybody else. And they would have freely admitted that was a weakness, Right? But we are all weak. 
that one of the reasons we're supposed to come together is to experience a shared experience of expression in discipline where we do feed off of each other and imitate each other and think on the good, true, and the beautiful together with gentleness, praying to God all of our anxieties together as the church. And then we get better at doing it individually. Okay, I gotta keep moving. Second is Jesus' gentleness becomes our extroverting attitude. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You need to act like the Lord is standing right there in every interaction. Every attitude you show somebody, Jesus is right there. What's Jesus' attitude? Towards them and you, right? You might be like, well, you know, Paul had some choice words for people. Like, he was tough. Right, well, but look at what he says in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthian church, is like one of the most problematic churches in the New Testament. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come at you, I might not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Okay, that's a little bit complicated. What's he saying? He's saying, you've noticed that like when I'm writing you letters from hundreds of miles away because I hear about problems at your church, I seem bold because I have to tell you the truth and I have to do it in a letter. So I don't have a lot of time to say it and I have to say it pretty directly. And so your letters are so bold. He's like, in person, I'm the same person. I'm just gentle with you. I love you. You're like my children and I don't want to hurt you. And so I'm telling you the truth. But like when I'm in person, I can give it to you like more carefully, more lovingly. And, and when I'm writing, I, there's limitations, right? It's why when you have a conflict, you're not supposed to write people emails. There's limitations to written text. But when Paul, if you would have met Paul, he wouldn't have been like Galatians 2 man. He wouldn't have felt that way. He would have said those truths, but he wouldn't have felt like that. He would have felt kind and gentle, and meek, and truthful, and strong, and honest, right? When we choose that gentleness is our extroverting attitude, what you realize is there's two things that are really healthy and really hard. To be rejoicing in Christ consistently, and to be gentle towards people externally, is holiness, right? And so you might be like, because, because it, what it requires is, if you're not just faking it, it's humility. You got to really believe other people are as good or more important than you. You got you to gotta see them as real people. You got to care about them like God does. And you got to realize that you're just as bad as they are, probably. And you also need to rec- you have this recognition that life is tragic, right? Like, it, life is shot through with the curse and difficulty and all of our failures all mixed together. And so, like, people are not in a good place. And that's who you're talking to. And we want to be treated with grace. We want people to treat us like we're trying, not as hard as we can, but like pretty hard. We feel really unseen and we feel like people are really ungrateful towards us when they're like, well, you need to do blah, blah, blah. But then it's really easy to be like that to them. And if you're going to be gentle with people, it has to come from a place of personal peace inside of you. If you're really anxious, if you're really upset, if you're really fearful, the likelihood that you're going to reactively take that on somebody else is like super high. So you have to be in the place of the peace of God, right? And you have to be sincere, re- willing to be honest with people and, and unwilling to flatter them. Because gentleness is a kind of irreverence. It's a kind of insult to their humanity. So what that means is, is that you've got to be in a really like, good place. And we're not, usually. You know what I mean? And so that's the, the, like, the Apostle Paul has this, like, in a really nice order. Because, like, what if you aren't, you don't have that kind of peace? And see, that's what he talks about next. He's like, well, that's the third thing, which is the Lord is your helper and counselor 
in anxieties and fear. And he uses a word that's not the normal word for fear here, but like, that is like, like more generalized thing, like what we call anxiety sometimes, right? And that's why the, it's translated that in your English translations. Like God, God isn't just gonna, he's not just your doctor. He's not just gonna like give you a pill to handle it. It's not like you get the Holy Spirit and you're never anxious anymore. He gives us a process for interacting with him in such a way as to be set free, as to find life in him, right? In the midst of it. And so it's important to recognize that when he says, first of all, he says, in anything and everything, right? So this gets back to this concept of God being the Abba Father, that is the one who wants to hear from you. Like there, there is, if you're like, well, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't wanna bother God with this. Okay, that is like the most unchristian thing you could possibly imagine. God, God is not like limited in his RAM, that you're like, too many prayers, it's just gonna like overload him. Like God, you can't psychologically overload God, okay? He can literally hear from every single person on the entire, this is why I'm not for praying to saints, okay? The reason I don't think you should pray to saints, besides that it's not in the Bible, there's no—like, okay, a bunch of other things is, I don't think Mary can hear a million people talking to her simultaneously, mentally, and sort them all out. I just don't think she can do it. Now, maybe she can in the glorified state. I'm not instructed to pray to her, so I don't. But, like, there's also, like, I don't, if I'm glorified like this, and I have anything like a mind like I have, and people, like, I died, and you people prayed to me after I was dead, it would just drive me—I mean, I would go crazy. Right? But the Lord Jesus, the great high priest, is not like that. He mentally can take in the cries of every human person in the entire planet whilst enjoying heaven with other persons who are glorified. Like, he, he has no limitation. So in anything and everything, if it is an anxiety to you, the apostle says, bring it to God. Right? But he, he does put, tell us how to pray very generally but still gives us instructions. He's like, okay, when you come, come with prayer and petition. Now, therefore, prayer in this context is separated from petition a little bit. That is, not all of the praying is asking for stuff. Does that make sense? So you're coming to God, and you're petitioning him. You're like, God, please help, because our anxieties are often things we can't control. So only the provident one is one we can rightfully turn to for that control without conniving. And yet, the prayer part is also just talking. Like sharing with him, this is how I feel. This is why I think I feel this way. I'm sorry that I don't believe the gospel, and however this relates to the gospel. I feel like that kind of stinks, and it's ungrateful, but that's how I feel. I wish, I would pray that you would help me. Will you take charge of the thing I can't control? And will you help me trust you, no matter what happens to me, whether I'm dying with Christ or being raised with him, in my union with him? Help me to walk in such a ways that I can have his peace. Right? And so, like, even though there's just, like, barely a verse here— I'm going to skip this, sorry. I've, even though there's barely a verse here, there's, like, seven things, okay? And so, like, I'm not—okay, I, I believe that it's, it's, like, perfectly cool when counselors tell people, like, when you're, like, super triggered and you, like, can't even think straight, to do, like, physical things to kind of, like, ground yourself. But once you have, like, in your animal spirits of being triggered, come back to a cognitive being that bears the image of God, you're back in that place. There are also grounding exercises to heaven you need to have as a person capable of provident emotion, right? So you do both of them. You can use, like, a, some kind of grounding technique to get out of that, like, trigger state. If that's—if you struggle with that kind of, like, traumatic trigger state. But when you get out of it, then, when you're in your right mind with it, you then turn to God— and, and this is what he says. He's like, basically, don't resign yourself to or deny the anxiety that you feel. Don't be like, well, I'm not just going to have this. This is just life. No. no. Or say, like, well, I'm not, I don't feel anxious. Okay, 
that's not helpful either, right? And therefore, go to God with it, with anything and, any, and everything, right? And then prayer is not analysis, it's expression. Okay, you don't have to be your own psychotherapist, okay? Sometimes it's just, it's unhelpful to just dig and dig and dig. It's, it's like, there, there are kinds of introspection that actually make you, like, less well-off mentally, because what happens is you get in this, like, analysis circle that isn't going anywhere, and it's just making you insane. It is anxiety speaking to anxiety speaking to anxiety. It's, it feels like analysis, but it's not good analysis. You just turn to the God who is there and speak to him plainly and honestly. And oftentimes when you do that, you intuitively have a sense of clarity about what's going on. Because you've, you've stepped back, you're speaking to one who can handle what you're going to say. And once you give to that person what you know they can handle, they're not going to respond reactively to you. He's God. He's just going to—he's going to receive it. And he's okay. he's, he may be not okay with what you're saying, like, like he's not affirming that it's right, but he's not going to flip out about it, right? You, it's amazing how sometimes when you just give it to him, and that kind of gets out of your mind a little bit, the, the truth just kind of settles in. And whether that's the Holy Spirit speaking it directly, or whether it's your mind being clear enough as a regenerate person with the Spirit dwelling in you, just, just like recognize it, is immaterial. The fact is, is that you tend to get clarity. And then you ask God for help, recognizing that the God you're asking for help and the God you're talking to has already been good to you. You see, if you come to God accusing him and telling him how his world sucks, you aren't really confessing and letting him interact with you. It's not an open relating in prayer, right? It's a, you should do this better, therefore give me stuff, which is religion, not grace, right? And so then, when that happens, you move, you're moving towards his invitation of consolation. You're opening yourself to the peace of God settling on you, right? In guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? And um, one of the things you need to recognize is this, is this is not a guarantee outside of it being a regular practice. Do you understand? The context here is not, listen, anytime you have any fear or anxiety, if you turn to God in this way, you will absolutely feel the complete peace of God in your mind and heart forever. That's not what it means. What it means is in your spiritual character, as you do this ritually, every time with anything and everything, you will increasingly orient yourself to trust in God and increasingly, you will have the consolation of God's peace dwelling with you for longer periods of time, more reliably, because, like, psychologists can tell us we're even rewriting our neurology while we're doing this, but that's immaterial to the fact of what God tells us to do. And see, so don't do it twice and go, well, this doesn't work. I still feel anxious. Okay, well, if you've been wallowing in your anxiety and been dealing with it badly— it's getting more and more strength and more power in your life, and it's been doing that for a while. You don't tear down the great edifice of your disobedience in one day. You can be forgiven from it in a moment. You can walk with Jesus through it about what you're going to tear down and how you're going to remodel, but it doesn't happen instantly. Human beings change over time. Does that make sense? All right. One of the reasons why this is so important is you can't really think beautiful thoughts and grow until you can calm down the noise. So in Screwtape Letters, um, the older demon 
Screwtape is talking to the younger demon Wormwood. He says, listen, sometimes people think that if music is the voice of heaven, that hell is the place of silence. He says, hell is not the place of silence. One of the, some of the most holy people in the history of God's people have been people of silence, peaceful silence. He said, no, hell, beautifully, is the kingdom of noise, activity, doing, right? And that's, that's true. That's why in some ways, and I don't mean this ontologically, I, just, I mean this figuratively, anxiety is like having hell in your mind. You, you, just, you don't want to agree with it. You don't want to stay there. You don't want to encourage it. You don't want to let it build. Because the voice of heaven is silence and music. And you have to get past the noise before you can actually have silence and enjoy music. Does that make sense? Now, once you are doing that work of clearing out the noise of anxiety, you've got to do something or stuff will rush into that empty space because we still have anxious, sinful hearts, right? And so you've got to have a plan for, spill, for filling the empty apartment of your mind when you, well, the moment you clear out that anxiety with something else. And what the apostle says is nobility, like, like the good, the praiseworthy, the beautiful, the truthful, the pure, is what you fill that space with. It's what's supposed to occupy the spiritual mind, right? And it's like really broad. Whatever fits those categories. You can think about a thousand million things. You'd be like, well, Nick, I'm interested. You can think about that thing this way. And you can be doing the work of growing spiritually. Does that make sense? Because you have to fill the space with something or something will anxiously run into it. In India, sometimes when I visit, there are these open waterways where sewer water is supposed to just flow out of these places. They don't have a lot of money for infrastructure to build all that stuff underground. Well, the problem is, is like empty spaces look like a great place to throw your garbage. But then people throw their garbage there and then the sewer water can't get out. So the sewer water stays. And then the mosquitoes live there and it stinks. And, but then nobody wants to actually get in there and clear that stuff out because it's gross. And it just goes on forever. And you see, that's how we're like with anxiety, right? Like we just live in it, live in it, live in it. Before you know it, you've got this like really nasty mess and you'd rather die than get in there. But that's just death. Because the only way for things to get better is you got to get in there. Right? One of the ways you can know, because one of the things you have to start with is where does your mind go when it's unoccupied? And for a lot of people, it's somewhere through this rectangle. But here's the thing. It's not just simply like that, you, that normally when your mind is unoccupied and you're trying to fill the anxious space, you just pull out the rectangle. You're doing it for a reason. Most of us are going somewhere, and it's not all the same place. And it's helpful to know when you take out your phone, you're in the grocery store line for four minutes. You can't possibly wait four minutes and just be with yourself or with the Lord. So you have to take out your phone, okay? So you turn on your phone and you go somewhere with it. Where do you go? And what does it say about the stable, anxious space of your mind without thinking about it. I go to the news because I have to know what's happening. Well, you're really only learning what the like super elite, rich people who control the news want you to know about that's all negative, which basically produces anxiety disorders in a lot of people and doesn't tell you much of the important stuff you need to know about the world, right? Or memes because I just want to be abused because I don't want to be left to just be thinking because I'm not comfortable just being in my head. Or likes, like, am I, are people approving of me out there in the in netherworld? Like, and you can go through all these different things. Like one person said, I know this week, said, when I have time, I go to my texts and my Slack and whatever because I'm tending to my relationships because I realize I'm anxious about are all my relationships okay? Right? And you see, you got to know what those things are because you got to clear those out too. 
And one of the best things to do is to go back to step three. Why do you take out your phone? Why did I just take out my phone? The reason is X. Okay. Back to step three. Lord, I'm clearly anxious about— Here's how I feel about it. Here's what I can't control. Here's my petition to you. I'm opening myself to your consolation and peace. I'm going to stand here in silence because it's one of the musics of heaven, and I'm going to try to adore Christ, and if anybody talks to me, I'm going to be gentle. (laughs) Right? Now, once you move on from that, there's this question of like, well, what are you going to choose? Because to occupy yourself mentally with something that isn't anxious, you have to choose it, right? And oftentimes you have to know what to not allow because that's your standard. I know what mine are, okay? Mine are very clear. I argue. I think about my hobbies, usually to take them to another level where I can learn stuff I don't know about it and beat everybody else, right? Or a third thing I can't think of right now, but I know what it is. I have it written down in here, okay? So what are you going to do? And so part of this, this gets back to the church. The local church is one of the places to begin to build those baselines, right? Fellowship and spiritual conversations. What are we supposed to do when we're together as the church? Well, we're supposed to have spiritual conversations. We're supposed to talk about what is—and we can talk about anything in the church. Anything in the nature of it being true, right, pure, praiseworthy, noble, beautiful. We can talk about a problem. But we're moving quickly from this is the problem to this is how I'm going to respond to it. This is what I'm going to do that's good. This is what I think God's will is. Rather than around and around in the anxious circle of what's wrong with it and everybody else. Right? Worship and prayer is to turn ourselves to the beautiful, the true, and the noble. Studying scripture, God's word written that is filled with all of the truth and nobility that he wants to impart to us. Ministering to other people that good which they require. And to a certain extent, like teaching that we receive or media that we can— Vibe, right? Relative to our personal life, it's similar stuff. Like a daily quiet time where you like stop, you read the Bible, you pray through your anxieties, you pray for others in gentleness and love, you express rejoicing in the Lord, you order your internal life towards God, preferably in the morning, but at some point. Reading good books, but I would say recommended books, there's 50,000 books and a lot of them are terrible. I would look to trusted sources to recommend books for you to read because there's so many really bad ones right? And then when you listen to content, I would say this. It should be premeditated and curated. You don't just bounce from video to video to video to video. All the algorithms are designed just to pull you in and to keep you watching, not to take you like, oh, here's, a, here's an even better talk on the deity of Christ. Here's an even better talk on spiritual theology. That's not what you're going to find. You're going to go from like a spiritual theology talk, and in like seven clicks, you're either going to be like the most progressive person in the world or a white supremacist, right? Like, because everything has to get more intense to keep you involved in clicking on the next thing. So you need to curate your content. We'll talk about this in November and December. Reading Christian biographies and patterning our lives imitationally after those people, mentoring in spiritual direction, and anything thought about in the ways outlined in that verse. But we have to take the reins on this, guys, and decide what we're going to occupy our minds with. Because otherwise, they will be occupied for us. Our culture is designed to tell us to do whatever we desire because they are making our desires through what they deliver to us in a hundred ways. They change our desires to what they want them to be, and then they tell us to do whatever we want. But we're not doing whatever we want authentically ourselves. We've—our desires are first hacked, and then we're told to do them. 
The only way out of it that I know of reliably is to pursue holiness in community the way God intends. Right? Okay. We've only got 16 more slides. Okay. Now, you might be like, okay, Nick, all this, like, think upon, like, all— I can think about everything in the world purely— nobly. I mean, I don't even know if I know what that stuff— I don't even know how to do that. It's like dizzying to think about. And this is great. That just gets you to the next part of the verse. The next part of the verse is, listen, anything that you've heard from a trustworthy, reliable, spiritual guide and seen in their lives, imitate. You actually don't have to be smart. You don't have to be analytical. You don't have to have a great brain. You just, like, right, the Bible says, the precepts of the Lord, what God teaches, make the simple, that is the not-so-intelligent, wise. You can have a low IQ, and you can live way smarter than people that have astronomical brain power, based on what you're willing to believe, accept, and apply. Right? Therefore, the, the fifth thing is, like, who do we imitate? And it's like the church is God's storehouse of incarnate influence. The church is his storehouse. This place is his storehouse of the people who are literally here in the flesh that we can love, know, and imitate. Right? Whatever you've learned from me or seen in me, put into practice. And if you do that, he's saying the God of peace will be with you. Meaning, all that stuff about praying and receiving God's peace, all the peace that God wants to give, one of the markers to make sure you position yourself for it is look at faithfully spiritual people really trying to grow in holiness. They're doing the best they can, and you can see Christ mattering in their life and shaping their life and get with them in a relationship of, some, of like emulation in their best characteristics. And in doing so, you are obeying God in a way you can't miss on. And therefore, you will walk in the peace of God. God's peace will be with you. Right? Now, but you see this all through the Bible, right? In Hebrews it says, consider the outcome of the way of life of the leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their way of life and imitate their faith. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. He says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, meaning angels in this context, right, to defend you, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you can't imitate someone who is not in the flesh with you, okay? In that sense, you can't imitate Jesus. Do you understand? Now, you can read the Gospels and see the story of Jesus' life, and you can translate that mentally into a picture of what he was like and try to imitate that. That's still an abstract thing. Do you understand how that's like, it's personal, Jesus is real, but like, when you, even when you interact with the story of his life, it's still an abstract action, right? He's not physically here for you to imitate like you would imitate another person. Neither is the Apostle Paul. Even in Corinth, he wasn't there. Right? So he's like, listen, I'm going to send Timothy. I'm his spiritual father. I'm your spiritual father. He is further along than you. I'm going to send him to you so you have literally a person right there that you can emulate. You see what I'm saying? God wants you to pick somebody or a few people that he's working in and emulate the best of what he's doing in them. And to do that, you do have to be discerning. It's not just anything, any quality in anybody. But you also can't be picky. The person's going to be a sinner. They're going to be quite imperfect. They're going to have vices that you're going to see and not emulate. But you're also going to see the grace of God operating them in beautiful and fruitful ways. You'll see the peace of God moving in their life. You'll see them growing, and you can grow with them. And what the Lord is saying is, like, if you won't participate in that, if you won't let another embodied human, real human being, if nobody's good enough for you, 
you are not going to walk in the peace of God. Because arrogance does not produce the peace of God. Nobody's good enough. None of these people. They all suck. Come on. Just the people who have dedicated their kids. The pain these couples have gone through and to celebrate the receiving of new life in adoption, having lost a child, in endeavoring to have another, in waiting through infertility, praying that God would give them life in their relationship and working through that and the disappointment of it. Just those couples who are young. And there's people with decades on them just in this room. Like, how picky are you going to be? Like, the, the breaking down of the arrogance to accept a real person to be able to speak into your life as an incarnate person because Paul isn't here and Jesus is not here. The Holy Spirit is working Christ in them. And so, you have access to numerous fathers and mothers. And sometimes you will find, strangely enough, they'll be younger than you, but usually they'll be older. Right? Okay, very quickly, five things about High Point Church. Okay, I'm just going to read them, mostly. Okay, one is, we as a church will attend directly to God. We are not just going to sit around and be thinkers and talkers. Attending directly to God is what we are made for. He is our God and King, the one who we will personally enjoy forever, and to neglect that will destroy everything else we're trying to do. And so we have to, and we need to do it in pr open prayer, expressive rejoicing. We need, we need to, people need to come here and be like, I think those people were rejoicing. <laughs> be like, right! People don't always say that when they visit this church. I don't know if you know that. Okay, so number two. Our personal and church extroversion will be gentleness. Okay? I know you're like, Nick, I just listened to you for like 40 minutes, and that's not what I got. Okay, I, I'm we're, we're all a work in progress. Uh, but, like, this is way toned down for what is in here sometimes. Okay? This is Italian gentleness. I don't have to tell you, but, like, the point is, is that, like, there are much harder things that come to mind, and they will be translated. They get, I mean, into, I, I take no pleasure in any pain, right? Like, I'm gonna, I might be tough but I'm never going to be mean. And what that also means is that has to be true of our leaders. When we think about elders and pastors and, and people who are going to lead ministries, we need to make sure—one of the things that the apostle is saying here is they need to have a backbone for truth, okay? There, are, there is a kind of gentleness that is just weakness, and that is insufficient. The Bible is very clear that anyone who leads the church has to have a stronghold of the deep truths of the faith, unmovable and able to refute the heretic. But he or she must also be gentle. You've heard me use this metaphor before that like a crab is hard on the outside and gooey on the inside. They just, it just, they just want to hurt everybody. A slug just doesn't have any backbone. You just squish it. It can't stand up for anything. A horse has soft flesh, has velvety nose, is strong, and like you push it, and you can't push that thing. It, like it has bone on the inside that is so strong. You're made with bone on the inside and soft flesh on the outside for a reason, because that is how we're supposed to behave as human beings. We are, at our core, we know what we believe, and we are strong, but we are soft to the touch. Does that make sense? It says that explicitly in 2 Timothy, that the Lord's servant must not quarrel, instead he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. To those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
You understand? So when you vote for elders, when you nominate elders, when you try to grow to become capable of being an elder, when you lead a small group, when you, right? Fourth is, we will focus heavily on, this, on spiritual theology in an inhumane culture. This is specifically in relationship to the epidemic of depression and anxiety that is growing in, especially among younger people, but among everybody. Loneliness, um, just nihilism about life, the loss of a sense of meaning to the point of unclarity about even our embodiedness as maleness and femaleness. It's horrible. And it's an epidemic in our culture and our church must speak to it, not by just being mean and denouncing certain people in our public culture, but by building a theology of what a human being is before God and how to pursue him spiritually. We, need, we can't just have a doctrinal theology, believe in Jesus and be saved. We have to have additionally a spiritual theology. This is how to live in, in an embodied way for Jesus in this world in a way that's fully human and redemptive and restorative and full of meaning and full of hope and full of joy so that the gospel is attractive to the sufferers. And then fifth and lastly, we will, pers- we will pursue holiness of mind and nobility of conversation. We are not just going to be an angry, negative, complaining church. When things are negative and have to be faced, we will move towards solutions, right? One of our staff core values is solution-focused. You can complain, you can say something's amiss, but we're moving towards a solution. We're not just here to complain. It's, we're not there like, this can't be done, people. We are, this can't be done. It's going to be really hard. There's all these things we need to consider, but we are going to do something great. We will be noble. Right? Oh, sorry, there's one more. Sorry. We be- and we believe in examples to emulate. We believe that the, the imperfect, normal, yet not typical human beings in the local church that God is working in are worth us emulating. We are not too good for our neighbor and brother and sister in Christ. Right? We can learn from each other and grow with each other. And, and there are, there's ways you must do that to walk in the peace of God. And you can't just say, like, well, I just do that with Jesus or the Apostle Paul. No, they're not here. Right? Jesus' mystical presence and his abstract presence in the text of Scripture is not the same as someone being there for you to see and imitate and watch. And we believe in that at this church. You come and you tell me nobody's good enough, and my first assumption is the problem is you. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to attack you. It's going to mean, though, that I'm going to try to help you. See that there are people who are good enough to help you. And that that's a lie of the devil that is keeping you from the peace of God and keeping you from being able to receive love from people around you who are plenty good enough to show you gentleness in the battle of your life. Do you understand? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we pray that you'd help us as a church to embody this passage. I pray that like in small groups and in mentoring relationships and in parenting relationships and spiritual friendships and personal devotions, I pray that this, these five things, people would use these for years and walk through them and that you would through the, just these few verses be able to set people's spiritual trajectories towards healing and health and growth so that they would receive the riches that are promised in this passage, which is twice the peace of God. Because in reality, if we have eyes to see it, like Devin said last week, the Lord is near. Help us to be a people who walk in it, who enjoy it, and therefore then who make the gospel attractive to all who suffer and who are far. In Jesus' name, amen.